Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. I'm your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, you're going to want to smash that subscribe button, share button, because this episode is going to knock your socks off. We have we actually have a true American hero, in my opinion, um, one of the author of one of the greatest books that I've ever written. He's a speaker. He's a leader of men. He's also a speaker of truth. So, sir, I want to welcome you to the show. Brother, I'm so blessed and honored that you're able to be able to hear today. Thanks for having me on, Richard. I'm really excited to talk to you and your audience. Oh, like I said, I'm truly amazed. And I got to put this out there, guys. Um, I was an Army National Guard, Army guy. I've always loved the Marines. I always loved, first of all, you guys got the best uniforms ever, hands down. Uh, But I also love the creed that there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine. And I love that mentality. So if you guys are Marines out there, I love y'all. So, uh, Stu, give us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background and tell you a little bit about, you know, what you got going on today. Yeah, sure. So Stu Scheller, Marine Infantry Officer of 17 years, been to Iraq, been to Afghanistan, a bunch of deployments, commanded at platoon commander, company commander, battalion commander level. Master's in military science, undergraduate in accounting. And I was thrust into the media when I made a social media post demanding accountability of my senior military leaders about a year ago. Went through a series of escalating events that resulted in my imprisonment, court martial, and resignation from the Marine Corps. Got out, did a bunch of media, and then wrote a book called Crisis of Command that came out last week. Book's doing really well. It's uh, number six AP. Associated Press bestseller came out in the Wall Street Journal as number seven for nonfiction books. So it's selling. It's doing well. Been doing book signings. And uh, it's kind of where I'm at right now. So what made you know, so where did you grow up and what kind of little kid were you and what made you want to join the Marines? I grew up bouncing around the Midwest as my dad kind of climbed the corporate ladder of his profession. He was a corporate insurance salesman. So from first to seventh grade, I was in St. Louis, Missouri. Grew up on a farm, horses, chickens, all that. But, you know, we had a farm, but we, we didn't rely on the farm for sustenance. My dad was a corporate businessman. We had it more really just for fun and and child labor, if you will. And then I, in seventh grade, moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, which is where I ended up going to high school and college. And played soccer, was an athlete, baseball, all, all the sports. But soccer became really my, my passion. He got a full ride down in a small school called Cumberland College in Eastern Kentucky. Yep. Played two seasons there. And then I transferred back to the University of Cincinnati and I finished out my degree there. Uh, I didn't have aspirations to join the military until I got out of college, graduated, was a you know young professional working and just was feeling like I wasn't doing much with my life. I was still young and hungry to go experience things. And the war was hot and heavy then. It was 2004. Marines were going through Fallujah. And I don't know why I wanted to join the Marine Corps. I can't put my finger on it exactly. Back then, I just I saw the Marines on the TV going through Fallujah. I knew the Marines were one of the best branches, and I wanted to challenge myself. So I submitted the officer application, and I was accepted. And I started Officer Canada School in January '05. Okay, now I've had no. I think we're under like episode 500 or something, something stupid. I've had a lot of Navy SEALs on. I've had a lot of Marines. I've had a lot of Delta Force. And they talk about why so many people quit before um, they graduate from uh, training. And I know Marine Corps is one of the hardest boots you can ever go through. What are some of the reasons that you stayed? Did you just have that one more rep rep mentality, one more push up? I'm not going to quit mentality. To me, it was I told all my friends and family that I was going to be a Marine officer. I I think I underestimated how challenging it was going to be. And there was definitely times I thought about quitting, but my biggest fear is being perceived as a failure. And so I just, I couldn't shame was such a powerful tool uh, that I just refused to allow myself to go back as a failure. So now when you graduated and you, you know, you get into the the big Marines and um, like for me, I've always, for some reason, every day always put me on, the lieutenant colonel's tanks or the colonel's tanks. So I was always with the with the colonels and, and the lieutenants. And it seems to me the, the lieutenants that were the most successful are the ones that actually listened to the sergeant majors and the upper ranks instead of trying to fight them and say, listen, this is my way, my way. 
So what was your experience like? Did you did you kind of do that? Yeah, I think, I mean, in any organization, people that are humble and can listen and be taught are the ones that be successful. So that, I don't think that's even just military specific. And when you go in as a young officer, the people with the experience are the senior staff and COs. And so any young officer that goes in there and thinks that they know everything, they're, they're destined for failure, right? I mean, you can see that coming a mile away. So I think I always understood that. Like, you can't go into any organization and not be humble. I mean, if you're a new corporate boss, you know, I'm sure you got hired as the boss because you were very successful in other places. But there's a ton of details in a new organization that you're not going to know. So if you go in there and pretend like you've got all the answers and you aren't humble enough to take feedback from all the, the junior employees or the employees that have been there longer than you, even though you might be the boss, you're not going to be as effective. And so I think that's just kind of a basic leadership thing is humility, which is funny. These are in the Marine Corps, all their leadership traits and principles. It's JJ did tie buckle and I can go through all of them. But humility is not in there. And, and quite honestly, humility is probably one of the most important characteristics in leadership. And the other one that's not in there is listening. Right. Humility and listening are probably two of the most important leadership qualities. They're just not often talked about. I totally agree. And um, I love that. Now, a lot of times, like I said, I've always been on. It usually starts. They start out as a second lieutenant, first lieutenant, and then they, they move up to captain and major. But it seems like the higher you get, the, the more you get away from remembering where you came from. And 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 forgetting your guys, and it becomes more of the corporate thing. So, what is it like to go, you know, to you know, go from being, you know, like a first lieutenant, second lieutenant, moving up, and but still trying to be in touch with the guys that are actually, you know, carrying the weapons and kicking indoors. Yeah. So I was a regimental opso, and there is truth to that because we don't fight as regiments anymore. Right. Everything is deploy deployment of a battalion or smaller. And so as you graduate to the regiment, division, you know, brigade level, you automatically get disconnected because you're not deploying like that. You're not fighting like that. So you literally place yourself in a staff removed from the military members where you work 18 hour days doing all this stuff. You staying very busy, important things. Um, but you, by the system, have removed yourself. And so it's 100% happens. Now, for me, like, I didn't realize how big the military was. Because for me, I was always just a tank commander or a gunner. So I only worried about my platoon. But when I when I got hurt and I lost my vision and I had to stay at, at camp for a couple of weeks, they put me in the talk. And that's when I was real like, holy shit, there's a lot to know. It's a lot bigger than I think it is. The battlefield is a lot bigger than I think it is. So, but also there's, there's sometimes you get, you know, colonels, lieutenant colonels, they still remember, you know, the basics of shit. And a lot of times, a lot of other officers, they would argue with them because like, sir, this shit ain't going to work. It looks great on paper, but when you get put, when you got foot feet on the ground, it's not going to work. Were you that kind of officer that just said, listen, this shit ain't going to work. We got to do something that's actually going to work and we're not going to lose lives. Over. Yeah, I'd like to think I'm a truth teller. That being said, anyone that just tells their boss all the time, sir, you're an idiot. This isn't going to work. You don't make it very far. Yeah. So the system is built like that to weed out people that give candid feedback. And so, you know, you could be one of those guys that's like, you know, I'm not a yes man. I always tell them how it is. Well, OK you don't get very far by doing that. So you, you got to be smart enough to know every boss asks for honest feedback, but every boss has a different threshold for what that is. So you have some bosses that you can be that honest broker all the time and, and they appreciate that. There's others that if you disagree with them once in a public setting, they're going to pull you aside and let you know that you veered off the path. And, you know, if you get enough of those bosses that are very sensitive to the honest feedback, then they don't give you a good evaluation. You don't get promoted and you don't keep playing the game. And so that's why I kind of in my book, I outline, I think we need to sever the tie between a boss needing to like you for a subjective evaluation. Because what, what should happen is that in a meeting, you give honest feedback and you may completely piss off that boss. But the boss looks at you and says, well, I can't do much because this guy in the performance simulator outperforms everyone every single time. And yeah, he's angering me that he's like pushing back. But at the same time, Maybe I should be learning from him and what he's saying because he's demonstrating just superior performance every time. And that's not how the system's built. So 
yes, I'd like to think I'm a truth teller, but I'll, I'll offer you that I'm emotionally intelligent enough to be able to navigate the system to get as far as I did, because there's times where you got to just shut, shut your mouth. All right. Now for me, like I said, I got the first time I was not a very good soldier. The first time I actually got thrown out for being a drug addict and alcoholic. Uh, but they kept me for like three years because they knew that I was a shitty soldier when I was in garrison, but you put me in the field. I'm a field dog. You know, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll stay up 72 hours, whatever you want. I got you. And I feel that now that I'm seeing, you know, talking to people, how do they get, as they get out of the military, it seems like there's not many field dogs out there. Everybody is just trying to get promoted and they're more worried about being in the rear with the gear. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there are those out there that want to be in the field. Um, you know, I still think that many units are evaluated based on their ability to perform. I'd like to think that. So if you're a battalion commander that is kissing your boss's ass all the time, but then you go do a field op or competition and you just completely punt it, then they're, that, you're going to be judged on that as well. So it's a balance. And I do think there's some field dogs out there. But, yeah, to your point, the priority that people have figured out is giving the boss what they want, and that may not have anything to do with field time. Okay. So now you stayed in for – you were in for 17 years. So what was it – because usually when a soldier, you know, hits that eight, nine-year mark, you're like, all right, either I, I'm getting out because I, I don't want to waste my whole life or I'm going to stay in and do the whole thing. So what was your thought process in staying in after that ten, nine, ten-year mark? Yeah, you're exactly right. I tried to get out after Ramadi. Excuse me. And my wife, we had just bought a house. It was like, let's take a non-deployable. And then I went to Afghanistan, and I was going to get out. But it was like, man, Afghanistan took a lot out of me. Maybe I'll just do school. And then school is a two-year payback. And then, you know, you do the two years, and all of a sudden you're sitting at nine, ten years. And you're like, ah, you know, the golden handcuffs are on you. And so – I, I made the decision that just financially and based on all my experiences and sacrifices up to that point, that it made sense to do another 10 years. And, uh, you know, that's the decision I made, but I, it was never supposed to be a, I never joined the military to be a career officer or for the retirement. Now I did after about a decade kind of come to that realization, but I do think that I've always kind of been in it for the right reasons. And that's why at 17 years, I still was capable of walking away from it if it meant something important enough. All right. So before we go there, because this that's what I want to get into the meat of this. I want to thank our sponsors. Our sponsors are uh, Vertical Momentum Coffee. If you guys missed the military coffee, we came out with a brand new coffee. Twice the energy, no crash, tastes awesome. But the best thing is I don't make any money off of it. 100% of it goes to help veterans struggling with PTSD and homelessness. So, guys, if you love coffee and you want coffee with a mission, write coffee down below. Because I'm always trying to pay it forward. I'm always trying to take care of our guys and girls that have served over. So now we can get into the whole meat and uh, meat and potatoes. What I mean, we all know what transpired, but I want to know what happened on your end uh, of you getting um, putting. Put, and it drives me crazy to know that they put you in jail for for speaking your mind. So can you bring us back? a little bit to the backstory of this. Yeah. So I, I made that first video demanding accountability. I, I used my office. I was in my cami state of my rank and title. And so they fired me immediately the next day. And even then I, I probably wasn't planning on making any more statements, but I was like working through it. Like it was like this slow buildup of frustration. So they didn't address any of the content. They fired me without an investigation. They told me I was going to move from Lejeune up to Quantico and sit in a cubicle and await further legal action. And I had people kind of heckling me, old bosses getting on my social media saying if I had any honor, I'd resign. And I, I just decided that I, I had a choice. You know, I could apologize, back away from my statements, probably get the stigma of PTSD. Like, we know you, you're struggling with PTSD. You know, I got it. You need to just go get some help. You you apologize, but you need to back away from your comment a little bit. And we'll take care of you, though. We'll take care of you. And I, I could have lived my life like that for the next three years, limping towards retirement. Or 
I continue to apply pressure on them and say, I, I believe in what I said. I'm not backing away from my statements and you guys need to address this. And so I took the second route and I continue to make statements and I continue to make videos and it resulted in me getting placed on a gag order. And then when I violated the gag order, they put me in solitary confinement. So now this all stemmed from the whole botched shit that happened in Afghanistan with, with the pullout, correct? Correct. Well, I mean, for me, that was the punctuation mark on really two decades of failed policies. You know, you, you get a master's and you start reading. I mean, it's really been going on since World War II. And so, but the, the, I mean, there's just the Afghanistan evacuation. There was just no better example of failure. And the point I was making, I mean, it, it was so clear to me. One, I knew no one would take accountability. And two, I know the military's figured out how to weaponize the media. And not only would they not take accountability, but they try and spin it as a success, which they did. And so I felt like service members needed timely, accurate assessment of failure. And it needed to come from someone of a position of authority. I felt like I was like one of the closest people to that. And so that's why I made the stand that I did. So now, you know, because I believe that, you know, they say, oh, freedom of speech until it's you until you don't have freedom of speech. And that, that kind of drives me crazy. Even with the last president, um, they'd say, oh, everybody's got freedom of speech except for you. You, you can't say anything. So what were some of the comments, the exact comments that you made in that video that got everybody all pissed off and rankled? Well, I made quite a few videos. So it was like they got it seemed a bunch of different people got pissed off each time I made a video. So, uh, you know, the, the first one. I'm not sure why I was fired immediately I, other than, you know, I, if you go back and watch it, I mean, everything was accurate and all I demanded was accountability. So to be fired over that was as quickly as I was, it was surprising. The second video I stated, Hey, all I asked for was you to address the content of my statements to say, yes, mistakes were made. And I, then I go on to say that I would have backed down, submitted and gotten back in line, but no one is addressing the content of my statements. And then I, in that video said I was resigning my commission. And then in that second video, I got all worked up and I said I was going to bring the whole effing system down because I was I was angry. It was throwing my whole life away. And, you know, so that one statement after like it was like a 10 minutes of video. Like if you go back and watch it, like most 955 of it is like solid content. But in that very end, I kind of got all angry. And so that one line was ripped. And, you know, I went back and clarified in a constitutional manner, but no one reads the follow up post. And so they then tried to paint me as suicidal and homicidal because I said I was going to bring the effing system down. And, uh, you know, that wasn't the case. I was talking to my command, so I was mad about that. And then they command directed a mental health evaluation. The doctor's like, you're not crazy. Let me go. And then it was just like this very tense situation between us. Um, and then in the, the last video, I said I was going to prefer charges against General McKenzie because it's my legal right to do so. Um, but they blocked that. You know, there's media like task and purpose coming out and saying that I can't do that, which is just factually wrong. And they, they had to retract that article about two weeks later when they actually fact checked it. And so it was just a, it was a situation that once I was in jail, like I know I had broken rules. I was not a gentleman. You know, I had violated the social media policy. Like, yes, I, I did do all that. And I knew that. And so I pled guilty to those things. And then I agreed to resign. And then that was that. So like, I've had my friend Clint Lawrence on here. He went to jail for same kind of shit, just putting stuff out there. Now, I believe, and I don't care which way people go because I'm not a, not a political guy whatsoever, but I think leadership starts from the top down. And if there's no accountability, then every it's just like the wild, wild west, right? What? So then, you know, what... What did you when did you start seeing the breakdown in in the leadership in the military? When do you think it started? I think it was Vietnam. I think, you know, if you go back and look at Quezon, where we had we sacrificed thousands of service members on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And then uh, all of a sudden, one day, unceremoniously, that piece of train was no longer important. And then we moved. And then no one went back and said, hey, generals, you've been there for two years because this was strategically important train. And now it's not. Was, are we going to hold anyone accountable for that, that blunder or just the failure to achieve political objectives in places like Beirut, Somalia, in Libya, Syria? I mean, the Kosovo, the list goes on and on. I mean, go back and like just check the records. 
we are not able to link political objectives to tactical victory. And that is the four-star military general officer level. So following Vietnam, what we did instead of holding the general officers accountable is we said, well, it was the, it was the draft and the drugs. And so let's go to an all-volunteer force. It'll professionalize the force because that's the reason we lost. And, and, and then we passed the Goldwater-Nichols legislation, which created the combatant commands, which really further empowered the general officers. So rather than holding them accountable, we, we gave them more power without ever saying you guys did some things that could have been more effective, like winning the war. And, uh, you know, since then, it's, it's more of the same. You know, the, the generals have all the answers. They protect the power. And when there is failures, they deflect towards the Department of State towards the junior service member or to objectives made by politicians that were never achievable in the first place. That being said, if they were never achievable in the first place, why didn't we hold a general officer accountable for pushing, not pushing back enough to prevent us even devoting assets and resources to a political objective that was never attainable. It's crazy. Okay. Now, because um, if, if you were president Stu yeah. at this time, what would you have done differently with the with the drawdown and with every with them getting out? What would what would you have done differently? So a lot of the book critics for me are like they, they get caught up on there's so many failures through and through for the last two decades of Iraq and Afghanistan that why hold anyone accountable now? You know, why not go back and hold everyone accountable? It's like, guys, we have to start somewhere. Yes. Yeah. There has been many mistakes, but just to say that the thing is so broken that we can't even try and fix it is such flawed logic. Uh, it's, it's crazy to me. So if I was the president, first of all, we would have never been in that mess because just the series of decisions that were made were so horrible. I mean, we decided to pull all military troops out. First of all, I wouldn't have pulled all military troops out. I'd have kept 1,500 there, just like we have in Korea. I mean, we got hundreds of thousands in across Europe. I mean, the list goes on and on. So, like, what is 1,500? It is a drop in the bucket to the, the million we have in the force to hold stability. Now Afghanistan is a safe haven for, you know, all our efforts. Like, we could have kept 1,500 and held that place, to be quite honest with you. So that's what I would have done, number one. Number two, if I was going to make the decision to pull all military troops out, I would have done it in a season where the Taliban wasn't in it, i.e. the winter. That's why we have a spring fighting season there. But President Biden, September 11th was a PR date. That PR date was more important than American lives and treasure. Terrible decision. And then even if you're going to pull all the troops out, you're going to do it during the peak fighting season because you want to have a PR date. At a bare minimum, you publicize that and you pull American citizens out before you pull the military troops out. Like that's common sense. And then, all right, let's keep going. So that's three like no, like no brainer decisions. If you're going to do all that, you obviously are going to hold Bagram Air Base, the place that you need to conduct the evacuation from. So like those four things, like I can't even wrap my brain around like all four of them independently are terrible decisions. And someone along the way should have been like, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, because I'm thinking you know, I'm, we're me and my wife were watching it unfold and I'm like, did anybody think about this? Did any, right. anybody ever play the game War? You know, does anybody ever think, listen, if I'm going to fly people out, I got to make sure that we're not going to get planes shot out of the air. Yeah. It's, or yeah. people hanging off the planes, right? Like, that seems like it makes sense. But, you know, and like we talked about before we got on camera, um, I'm a big mental health advocate. I have my own mental health. Today, I decide mental health summit every September. And after that happened, suicide rates went through the frigging roof. Because a lot of a lot of guys and girls that ser served over there are like, wait a minute, you know, I lost my battles, you know, I got hurt or whatever, and now it's all for naught, it's for nothing, and we lost a lot of people, and and, and that never got that never got talked about. Is that something you've heard? It's also, I mean, that was some of the things I was saying from the beginning, when the Afghanistan evacuation was getting just punted and it, it was starting to become obvious, and everyone was getting real upset all the senior leaders started releasing statements trying to address it. So the commandant of the Marine Corps released a white letter, the Pentagon released a white letter, and both of them essentially said, hey, if you're struggling, you need to go seek mental health treatment, right? And that actually made me much more angry because 
just going to get mental health treatment is one thing. But if senior leaders actually cared about service members' mental health, they would address the true source of their frustration, which is senior leaders not sticking up for the junior service member by having some type of coherent plan that would validate their sacrifices. And so that actually made me so much more frustrated. And, and I think when my mental health was challenged, that was another thing to say, PTSD should never be a wave of a wand. Like we excuse your actions because you have PTSD. Like we should always be accountable to ourselves, to our peers. And so, yes, does mental health, um, is it out there? And do people experience it when they come back? Yes, they do. But my, my position is, you know, we shouldn't treat ourselves as victims. Like we're fighters, we're warriors, and we should always be fighting. But obviously the suicide rate is going to go up if we have senior leaders that can't be honest about what's happening. And then that's really the true source of people's helplessness. Yeah. Now also, you know, like I said, our, I, we have a lot of military uh, people that listen to the show. And a lot of us, like myself, struggle when we transition out because, uh, well, me, I got hurt on duty. And obviously, if you can't see, you can't shoot. We don't need you. So they they medically, you know, they medically uh, discharged me. And that was the day I attempted suicide because, you know, after 23 years of being Sergeant Kaufman, now I don't know who Richard is. And I no longer have a mission. I no longer have a career I, and I no longer have friends, you know, people in the military. Cause like one of my friends talks about is once you step off base, the military doesn't give a shit about you. The, the phone stops ringing. So a lot of people, we just get lost and we don't know where to go with our transitioning. And I talked to one of the high level generals and I'm not going to men mention his name. And I said, you know, you train us to go to war but you don't train us to come home and fight the demons. So, you know, what do you think about that? And what is your opinions on that stuff? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think the first part of what you said, the military doesn't care about you. It's the people inside the military that cares about you. I mean, I think we all kind of come to that realization differently. So when you get out of the military, the organization isn't going to reach out to you. So hopefully you have friends and acquaintances that will stay in contact and check on you. The reality is, especially in the military, because we're so transient, you know, going to the next duty station, you lose touch with guys. And that's just everyone's living their own life and caught up in their own bubble. So I guess one part of it would be make sure you're reaching out to those people that are getting out because they can feel like they're on an island and isolated a little bit. But the other part of it is, you know, there's individual accountability where if you need help, you need to be wise enough and mature enough to call some of those buddies that will listen to you because, you know, all of us have two or three people we, we can call if it, you know, the night's getting dark and uh, hopefully we all can, can network and get together and prevent some of those, those dark nights. I love that. Now, also they say that if you want to lose your friends, get sober, get, go poor or go to jail. And then you're going to find out who your real friends are. So talk to us about, you know, that first, I like the get sober one. That's good. Well, I, I've been, I've been sober for now 30, 33 years. So, and I, I've had a lot of people that I've we're friends with and it's like crickets now, but you know, yeah. that's, but so talk to us about that day when, you know, they closed that cell and you're sitting on the bunk and you're like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. This, this is crazy. Well, I mean, I knew that they were probably going to do it. If you go back and look at that post that where I broke, violated the gag order, I was like, I'll see you Monday at 08 ready for jail. Right. So I was baiting them and I knew that they didn't have the legal ability to do it, but that they would probably overreact and, and lie. And they did, they put that I was a flight risk on the paperwork. So I, even though like I was expecting it, I was still disappointed. If you will, it's like, you know, will dad lie to me? Will dad mistreat me? And, and he did when he does, even though you're kind of expecting it, it's still a disappointment. So yeah, when the when the cell door shut, um, at that point, you know, it's you don't have contact with anyone, so you don't know who's going to support you or who's severing ties. But you know, as the process drew drew out, but I definitely that was a, the whole ordeal was something where I figured out who my real friends were for sure. Now, how long were you locked up? Nine days in solitary. And they put you in solitary. 
in solitary confinement. And I'm sure whatever jail you went to, I'm sure they were drug, you know, drug dealers and all these people. And you get put in, in you know, because all you're doing is talking. It's, it, that's well, it's, the reason they, they didn't put me in solitary. I think they put me in solitary because I was a a national media thing that they, there was a lot of risk to me. Right. So if I went in there and had gotten shanked, that would have been bad news for everybody. Now, the the place I was at was a Camp Lejeune break. Everyone that was in there was Marines. And the guards were Marines. So I just want to be clear. At no point did I feel like I was at risk of anything bad happening. I mean, it was like, it was honestly like being on a deployment in, in a terrible place, just sleeping. And I got better food in jail than I did on some of my deployments. Uh, but they had congressmen showing up to the jail. They had national media talking about, there was protests and parades outside the base, like free sheller. I mean, it was a circus. And so that's why I was in solitary is because it was just like, we can't allow anything to happen. So now how long until the moment they, they said you were going to get locked up and put out of the military, what was the time frame from the first video till the minute you're no longer United States Marine? Well, uh, I released that first video August 26th and I went to jail about September 26th. So that whole escalation of, you know, four videos, multiple posts, gag order, jail was about a month. I got out of jail the first week of October and I didn't get out of the Marine Corps until Christmas Eve. So that was actually a much longer period of time. And I didn't make another statement in that period of time. And so that period of time was really hard because I was just waiting for out processing. I was still having to come into work every day. It was, it was weird for everybody. And so really the, the whole escalation of stuff was a month, but then I didn't get out of the Marine Corps for another couple months. So what did they finally when they when you were when they retired you or you retired at 17 years old what what was the was it honorable what 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 did they finally do the top rung is honorable the one below it is called general under honorable that's what i got a general under honorable so you know mentally you know because i know you know you do 17 years doing everything you can to be the best leader you can be and then you're you're put out with a general under honorable conditions and you're just like what the fuck? My lawyer told me they were going to, because my plea deal stated that I was either going to get an honorable or a general under honorable and that they would decide later. And so that was the one question mark, you know, after I got out of jail, I went to the court martial, had to pay five grand and with a letter of reprimand. So, you know, like that first week of October to Christmas Eve, the only question mark was what are they, what, what are they going to characterize my discharge as? And it was completely in their control. I got to write a letter that said I should have an honorable and here's why, but you know, They'll take that with a grain of salt, and then they're, they're going to look at all the other people's recommendations. And unanimously, all the generals in the Marine Corps and the secretary—I'm sorry—in the uh, secretary of the Navy—all agreed that it should be general under honorable, which I was blown away by. And the way the order reads, it's—I feel it says if a service member's uh, service was uh, so honorable beforehand that it would be inappropriate to classify anything other than honorable then that service member should get an honorable. And I, and I went through my record. Like, you know, I mean, my record speaks for itself. Like, obviously, other than this one month of, you know, saying things you didn't want to hear, I have been very honorably, you know, like combat awards, been command selected, command screen for school, selected every opportunity. I mean, there's just no way you could argue that I wasn't honorable. And so it was surprising a little bit, but in a way it wasn't either. Like, you know, they, they wanted me out and they wanted to stick it to me as much as they could. All right, so now it's Christmas Eve. You're home with the family. Thank God, you know, you get to hang out with your family. You get to have Christmas holidays. And then do you ever just sit down and be like, all right, now what? You know, because that was me. I didn't know. All right, I was a soldier for 23 years. I don't know anything else. What do I do now? Or was the books already in the makings in your mind? Yeah, I had a plan. So that's what helped me. And I stayed very busy. I got out and, like I said, Christmas Eve. So January, February, I hit the media really hard because, again, I had been silent for almost three months and everyone was saying all these things about me. So my plan was to get in the media and tell my side of the story, and I did. And so then, like, first week of March, I sat down and started writing the book, and that took me all the way through April. And then May through really July, I took some time off. And, you know, all my stuff was still in personal storage bins and just had a lot of personal, like, got to get my life in order for the next push. And then come August, you know, the book came out September 6th. August, I started jumping back in the media and promoting the book. And 
I've been traveling all over the country um, really since the last week of August. Um, I just, uh, yeah, I was in Ohio, I think last week. And then I was in Jacksonville, North Carolina for a book signing two days ago. And then I fly out to San Antonio here in a day. So that's like my life all the way through the holidays of this year. So I'm already booked out really um, through Christmas. And then uh, that'll take me all the way to January 23, at which point, you know, I'll decide what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> so, you know, when I wrote my book, which just hit number one on Amazon twice, um, for, for addiction and recovery. Um, but when I wrote my book, um, it became, it ripped open a lot of wounds, a lot of healing had to be done. And so, and it was very cathartic writing my book. So what was it like writing your book and how, what was that process like? Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, in other podcasts, I've used those exact words. It was emotional and cathartic is how I describe it. And, and you know, writing it is one thing, you know, that's a cathartic process. But what was really hard for me was having to go back and reread it for editing purposes like 15 times. And and I even told my parents, it's like, I, I can't read this again. Um, it's really starting to take an emotional and physical toll on me every time I read it. And so by the end of April, once the final edit was done, I didn't open it again until August. Like I had to just get away from it because it was, yeah, it's, a, it's an emotional process for me. So, you know, like I said, I've, I've, I'm reading it. I actually have it. I think I'm on my, my second or third iteration just because I, I think it's an amazing book. And I, and I love the leadership principles that you talk about. Um, so in your mind, um, okay, well, before I even ask, I should have asked you the first question, but I totally forgot because I'm so excited that we're chatting. Um, what is your definition of resilience? All right. So this is a good question. So, I think there's a spectrum and I think over here is being fragile. I think resilience is in the middle and because there's not really a word, there's a the guy that wrote a book on this named Tlaib over here is anti-fragile. And so I'll break down definitions of each of them. Being fragile means when there is something that applies pressure to the system, to your system, uh, to the, to the group that it easily cracks and crumbles, right? And so you don't want to be fragile. Now, what, what does resilient mean to me? Resiliency is when pressure is applied to the system, you're able to withstand it. So as adversity is coming at me, I can stay focused on what I'm doing. I'm not getting weaker, but I'm not getting stronger either. I'm just able to withstand that pressure and keep doing what I'm doing. I think there needs to be a, a word that's stronger than resilience because we don't want to just be resilient. We want to be anti-fragile, in my opinion. What is anti-fragile? Anti-fragile is when there's pressure applied to the system, you actually get stronger or the group gets stronger and is able to take that adversity and turn it into strength. And so I try to live my life as anti-fragile, right? So as you're attacking me, I'm taking those arguments or how you're applying pressure on me and I'm turning it into a strength. I mean, just the other day, right? I had a, uh, my book came out and most of the major military articles are not going to talk about it at all because I've been bashing them over the head. I mean, I talk about task and purpose in my book, right? So it's very hard for task and purpose to come out and objectively write a review when they know people will be like, yeah, that's because he was talking trash about you, right? And so um, real clear defense. I mean, this guy, I think I understand why he did it because he's he actually used to work for task and purpose and he he's friends with General Mattis. And so I think he had, you know, some bias there. Everyone's got bias. That was how I identified his. But he ends it with like, this is a book that will quickly be forgotten as quickly as his first video was like, you know, just like a, a parting shot at me. So like that's pressure applied to my system. Right. And so when I first read that, like it hurts a little bit, like, you know, when you pour all this emotion and you think you have a really good product and someone writes something like that now. So fragile would be like, I take that and I just go into a corner and I start crying and, and it really hurts me. And, you know, obviously, like, like I go on a podcast and just like, well, critics don't really like it. And, it's, and so, you know, that that hurts. Resilient is like, OK, he said that doesn't bother me. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. But anti-fragile is like, how can I take that and make it make it stronger? And so what I've figured is like, you know, I'll take that comment. I'll wait. I sat on that comment for 10 days. You know, AP, number six, best-selling nonfiction in the United States. Wall Street Journal. Uh, number seven, best nonfiction selling book. And so then you you make a post and you say, hey, brother, 
this was your review. You're going to update it because here's my recommendation. I'm sorry. Our opinion wasn't in line with the American people as objectively defined by the best-selling nature of the book, right? And so I, that's like one example of, you know, I tried to take the attacks and the pressure that's applied to me and and pause and think, like, how can I react to this that's going to make me stronger? I love that, you know, and I love that analogy because lately it seems that as a podcast, like, I think we're in like top 0.5% in the world in podcasts, but it seems like the more the popular it get, the more haters that we get. Yeah. Well, that's, you're exactly right. And I tell myself that too. Like, here's another example. There's like, there's a Marine that I served with. His name's Elliot Ackerman. And he was in one eight with me. He got a silver star in Fallujah. I mean, I've always looked up to him. So he was in Fallujah. I showed up to one eight right after that. I get to one eight right after that. And he's this like silver star, you know, senior first Lieutenant. I'm a second Lieutenant. And we went to the bars, all the lieutenants and had some events. And so I got to know him. Good friend. He then goes on to Marsoc. Marsoc was different back then. It was in its infancy. I don't even think it was called Marsoc back then, but it goes to the now day Marsoc, does a couple more deployments, and then he gets out and he becomes an author and he writes a bunch of books. And so, you know, I've, we've kept in contact. He, now he writes a book on Afghanistan. It's called like the fifth act. And, it, and so if you go on Amazon, Elliot's book all says editor's choice and, you know, you go to mine and it says bestseller. Right. So that's kind of it illustrates a difference. He's friends with all the editors. He knows the people, but whatever. Like I the Pineapple Express guy, Scott Mann, has been nothing but good to me. And I would love to like take a picture, support his book, do anything I can, just be a good dude. And I want to be a good dude to you. Elliot goes on all these interviews and talks about how I'm like the guy in Tunisia that lit himself on fire and how I'm a political ranter. And he's basically talking trash about me and never once brings up the fact that we're friends. And we serve together. And he, he suppresses that fact to differentiate the credibility of his book. So it's like me promoting my book is more important than the relationship I have with you, Stu. And so, you know, I, I called him out in a post. You know, I've got a pretty large social media following. So I call him out in a post and just say, hey, man, it's interesting to me, interesting to me that you're not addressing that we have this relationship. You know, call me and we'll get a beer and hug it out. Like two days later another review comes out for the fifth act. And then it's like, well, it's not like Stuart Scheller's ranting and raving. This is a very eloquent, sophisticatedly written book. And it's like, yeah, sorry. A little bit of a rant there. Uh, and, I, and I get it, but you know, like so, somebody, I, I put a post out the other day and, and it was about why I started the podcast and, you know, I'm trying to help veterans and I get people just making smart ass comments. And I just write back to them. I'll say, like Gary, like my friend Gary Vaynerchuk says, just kill him with kindness. It's like, God bless you. you know, yeah. It is what it is. I'd you know, say, like, I guess the difference between my story and yours, like when it's the random hater, first of all, I don't know if it's a bot or a real person. So yes, yeah. in that situation, you kill him with kindness. But it's the story I just gave. Like, I mean, even when you get big, like your personal friends will go out of their way to try and like marginalize you. And that's what's really weird to me. And it goes back to our earlier conversation. You find out who your friends are. Success is one of those things we didn't mention that also you kind of figure out who your friends are. But also, you know, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm thinking now, say if you were him at, are at a conference and you guys step into the elevator, he's probably be like, hey, bro, how are you? What's going on? And you're like, bro, you just douched me for all this time. Now you want to be friends, you know, and, and I because I believe I'm a big relationship guy. I believe in relationships. I believe in honesty and loyalty. I'm a big loyalty guy. And if somebody like that, you know, how good can a person's good book be if if they're not even loyal to their friends that they serve with? Right. You know, that's why sometimes, like, I'm, like I said, I'm not a big political guy. But when years ago, when, you know, shit happened with John Kerry and none of his friends showed up to talk and had his back, I was like, well, I guess that says more than anything about a person. So my last couple of questions is, we also have a lot of people that are in our show that are that listen to our show that are vetrepreneurs. They're veteran entrepreneurs. And now, you know, you have a book out. Now you're starting to see the business side where you're starting to see the bookings and you're starting to see sales and all that. So what was it like, you know, going from a veteran to a vet to a vetpreneur? This is an interesting question because a lot of people don't know this portion of my life. I didn't have social media before 2018. 
I got social media in 2018 because I launched a business. The business was called The Perfect Ribbon. And uh, we created and patented a product and, and had it in all the Marine Corps exchanges. And so I was a 50-50 partner. I've since sold most of my equity out of that company uh, based on everything I was going through. It was bad for business. But I say that to, I mean, my social media following, why it caught fire is because I had maybe like a thousand on, on my LinkedIn and Facebook profile that were all vetpreneurs. And it was all veterans that were business oriented. And so in those three years, 18 to 21, when you know I made that video, I was doing vetpreneur conferences. So there's an organization called Bunker Labs. Uh, I was the keynote I'm speaker. I'm actually friends with Dean Bunchu. So yeah, yeah, I know Dean. Really, I'm friends with Dean as well. He's, been, uh, he's actually been been on the show also. Yeah, he's a great person. I mean, that's a yeah. guy that, and he's been texting me through this whole ordeal too. He's one of those guys that's like, I'm here for you. Anything you need. Mm-hmm. And so I was a keynote speaker down in Wilmington. And so the the business aspect of it, I think I got a, for lack of a better term, undergraduate in how to run a business, go through all these things, build a following. Uh, before I did this. And so I had some exposure to it. And quite honestly, I think running a business while being in active duty is a rare thing, but also one of those things that's very important. And it's helped me a lot in my business acumen as I've navigated. I mean, just the book itself, right? There's business decisions before you even write a book. Like I could have self-published and that actually probably would have been more profitable. But instead Mm -hmm. I went and got a book agent, 15% right there. I went and got a publisher you know, at least 50% right there. Now you're only left with 35%. And so it's a business decision. Do you want to go that route? Because they have access. They have the ability to get you on bestseller list, right? Had I self-published, I don't even get the opportunity to be on the Wall Street Journal bestselling list, the AP bestselling list. And so there's a there's a point where, you know, I'm doing this myself with everything else that's going on. And I'm making business decisions that I think are what's in my best long-term interest. And so, you know, I think having some type of business understanding or at least a mentor that you can talk about it with is very important. And, you know, just taking me out of the conversation, I think entrepreneurship and veterans are great, uh, are very symbiotic. And I think veterans that get out, even if they take a couple jobs, oftentimes find themselves five, six years down the road being entrepreneurs because they're very independent people. And I, and I think that they have all the skills necessary to be disciplined and do what it takes to be successful uh, at owning a business. Okay, so the last last question. I know you. I know you got so much to do today. Um, business, I believe. You know, business and the military. I think they go hand in hand. But I think a lot of people, when they get out of the military, want to start a business. Like they want to start a t-shirt company, hat company, liquor, or coffee. Um, I did three out of the four. Uh, but you know they don't have an SOP and they don't have a business plan. And like one of my friends, Stephen Kuhn talks about, if you don't have a business plan, you don't have a business. You just have a hobby. Steve is also a friend of mine. I'm getting weirded out by all our connections. Yeah. Steve has been, he actually, he set me on my track to success right now. And I just did a big uh, post about the book that him and Lane Malone put out, Unleash Your Humble Alpha. But he taught me, you know, because I was everywhere. And he's like, listen, if you don't have a business plan, you don't have a business. So make sure you have a business plan. Learn your SOPs before you start your business. So can you talk about that that aspect real quick? Yeah, I actually have a different perspective on it. I mean, I I love everything Steven's done. And he actually brought me into a couple organizations and mentored me. So when I started The Perfect Ribbon, Steven reached out and provided counsel. And so I've learned a lot from him. But my take, uh, you know, I did a I did a podcast one season, 10 episodes, and it was about entrepreneurship. And I can't remember what entrepreneur I was interviewing, but I asked him this question about business plans. And he's like, you know what a business plan is? He's like, I wrote it on a piece of paper. It said make money. And, you know, that's obviously the polar extreme of what you're talking about. But I thought that was very insightful and I wrote it down. And so the, the problem with business plans and entrepreneurship, when you when you have a young company, it changes so fast. What you don't want to be is paralyzed to the plan and you have to be very flexible and adaptable. So if you are going to create a business plan, I think it needs to be flexible. And so when you're talking SOPs, to me, SOPs is for a large organization that needs the efficiencies. When it's just you and one other guy that's starting a painting business, like you probably don't need a ton of SOPs, that's stuff that you get as you grow. 
And as you grow, you need to start developing framework for it. So, yeah, I, I do understand like the point you're making in terms of if you're starting a business, you need to have structure and a path to success. But I think if that comes at the cost of marginalizing you being flexible and just getting out there and going and, you know, people can write, I'm writing my business plan for two years. Well, it's like, what have you been doing? Get out there and do it, make money and then figure the rest out. And so there's a balance there. Yeah, I love that. You know, and one of my friends, uh, John Lee Dumas, he's actually one of the biggest podcasters in the world. He's actually mentoring me. And that's something he also said. He's like, you know, it's one thing to plan something, but planning without action is worthless. That's right. So now uh, tell us, you know, how, how, where do we find your book? How can we find your book? And how can we support your mission and what you got going? I actually seen a, a, a group on Facebook. Stew for president. I was like, yeah, I joined it. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, so you can buy the book anywhere. Amazon is the biggest seller of books nowadays, but it's in all the Barnes and Noble books a million. You can buy it on those websites too. You can buy it on target.com, walmart.com. So it really anywhere you buy books, you can find it. It's crisis of command. And if you want to learn more about me, I've got a website. It's called authenticamericans.com. Authentic Americans is just essentially a brochure of me. I mean, it's got some things that I've written. It's got all my social media tied to the bottom. Um, it's got all my network interviews. So it's got like six pages of, of interviews I've done if you want to watch some of those interviews. Um, and, you know, I'm going to be out. My book signing schedule is on the Authentic Americans website if you want to see where I'm going around and signing. And then, you know, like I said, January 23, if and when I jump into politics, um, more will be released probably through the websites and my social media. Oh, cool. All right. So something that it, it, it struck, struck me funny. One of my friends, his name is Dean Wagner. He actually has a clothing company called Authentically American. And I he actually, well, I actually reached out to Dean and was trying to partner with his t-shirt company because I, I have AuthenticAmericans.com. Yeah. Um, and it, so it made, because I have merchandise through my website, but we couldn't come to a, an agreement that made sense, but he's a good guy. I love the, in fact, Dean was on my, my 10 episodes of a podcast. He was one of the guys. See, you know, it's, everything is symbiotic. You never know who knows who. Still, I just want to say thank you so much. I know we had to reschedule a couple of times, but thank you so much for taking the time and hanging out today. Absolutely. Richard, hope you bring me back on, man. I, I love your, your show and, and your following. So hopefully I can come back. I love it. So guys, Make sure you get his book. Like I said, I'm in the second or third iteration. Make sure you pick it up. Um, check it out. Because I think it's not only a good book for just in leadership in general, but if you apply it to business, a lot of the leadership principles, I think you'll be even more successful in business. So, guys, I want to thank you so much. Uh, remember, vertical momentum, the only way to go is up. And like my T-shirt says, guys, the three most important words in the English language are today I decide. You decide whether you want to be a victim or a victor. So, all right, guys, I love you. Stu, have an amazing week, and I can't wait to see what you got coming up next. Thanks, man. All right, God bless. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.